David, a man after God's own heart, part 14. The title of this morning's message, God's Building Project from 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 1 to 16. So as we continue our series on the life of King David, we come to an important, a, a crucial chapter. And there are a few passages in the entire Bible that are, I suppose, more important than 2 Samuel 7. As, as one would expect, when you come to a passage such as this, that there is a lot of studies, a lot has been written about. And this is because it is the record of God's promise to David. And many refer to it as the Davidic Covenant. And today we look at God's words to David and next week we are going to be looking at David's response to God's words through prayer. So last week, just touching a little bit on last week, last week we we spoke of how David initiated bringing the ark to Jerusalem, which was a, a great idea, but soon everything started to go wrong. Uh, God intervened and the project was delayed for months. And he had to do with the holiness of God and how they had taken it for granted. So the holiness of God was an important lesson for David and the rest of the nation that they had to learn. And what a way to, to learn it than through the death of somebody who was actually very close to the ark. So as we move to, to this chapter, we don't actually know when the events uh, recorded in this chapter happened. And uh, we are assuming that they are here because of the theme that follows from chapter 6 rather than a strict timeline of events. So the first uh, heading this morning is an uneasy rest from verses 1 to 3. And I suppose maybe some of you are asking, well, why do we have a reading of the whole passage first of all and now you're going to be reading the passage again? Well, firstly... We we need to understand the flow of scriptures and then I go back and look at it in more detail in in smaller, shorter chunks. And that is the way that we are to approach God's word because we want God to be speaking to us and not just me sharing my ideas with you. So first of all, I now need to rest from verses 1 to 3. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Now remember that the ark of the Lord represented God's presence. David, the human king, was living in a palace made of cedar. Meanwhile, God, the divine king, was living in a tabernacle, basically a tent. And David, having settled himself in his palace, he starts to feel a little bit uneasy at this disparity, this apparent anomaly of him in a palace and God in a tent. So he questions himself, if this was proper, if, if this was a way to properly honour God who had given him 
so much with, with you know, this unfair scenario before him. So, we can assume that David was not going to level things up by dating by David getting rid of the palace and then moving in a tent himself. That probably wasn't going to happen. But he does consider upgrading the accommodation for the ark to something more appropriate. David was thinking of building a temple, even though we don't actually have a mention of the word in the passage before us. One thing to take into account is that in David's time, in David's world, it was common for kings to build temples for their gods. If you travel through Asia and many parts of the world, there are many examples of Hindu and and, and Buddhist temples being built by kings and by generals, as it is a, a very popular, easy way for them to ingratiate themselves with the population and also gain favour for their gods or with their gods. But Saul didn't do this. King Saul didn't do this. And David was meant to be a king who was not like the kings of the nations. Nevertheless, David shares this uneasiness with the prophet Nathan who understood David's thinking. And while the the proposal was, was vague and lacking in any details, Nathan expressed his personal view that the king had a good idea. So he gave his blessing and even seemed to be giving God's blessing when he says, go ahead and do it for God is with you. Now pastors can many times fall into the mistake of presuming to be speaking to God when they're actually just sharing their own personal thoughts and ideas. And uh, not just pastors, but I've had a few people over the years come to me and say, Pastor, the Lord told me, um, and maybe you've had a a similar experience as well, but did the Lord really say, or is this just your own personal opinion? Now I can certainly see how and why it was easy for Nathan, the prophet Nathan, to approve problem is that in doing so, he was being presumptuous. He, he was actually jumping the gun. He should have offered to, Lord, let me go home, let me pray about it, and then come back to you. But no, he just spoke. And then, and as he spoke, he just gave the approval. He hadn't received a word from God on this matter. As a result, he was not speaking for God, as the prophet of God, but he was expressing his own personal opinion on something that was reasonable, it made sense, but it didn't come from God. It was based on human reasoning. But this was about to change very quickly. And you know, there are times when we feel like we want to do something for the Lord, isn't there? We want to express our gratitude to him for his grace his blessings, for the fact that God has been with us for a number of years. And there might be nothing wrong with our intention and our hearts might be in the right place. But this does not mean that God approves of our plans and ideas simply because 
we have the right motives. Many times God has other ideas and plans and purposes which might not actually make any sense to us. But they are his. And this is why we have to pay attention. And and, and this is why he tells us in Isaiah 55 verse 8, those well-known words, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Let's get that out of the way, straight away, right? He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. Now when the Apostle Paul found himself in jail, he found himself behind bars, uh, it, it didn't looked like God was with him or that this was part of God's plan. It seemed, and and when people are in jail, it seems like a gross injustice. But Paul didn't actually lament his situation. And uh, when he wrote in in a letter to the church at Philippi, this is what he said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually, and I'll repeat that, has actually served to advance the gospel. How can it possibly serve to advance the gospel when you're locked up in jail? What Paul went on to say is that his chains have led to a whole palace guard. Learning about Jesus Christ, verse 13, if that chapter you can read it at home. And others had gained confidence through his situation, they gained confidence to share the good news of Jesus. That's in verse 14. Now to us it doesn't make any sense. But in God's economy, in God's purpose, in God's ways, he turns things around for his glory. He's been doing that for a very long time and he's better at it than you and me. Now we are not behind bars, are we? Not yet, anyway. We're in lockdown. And it might feel that we are, have a lot of our freedoms taken from us and we're restricted. But I wonder if we, rather than just, you know, curling up in a, in a fetal position, could actually ask the larger question, what is God trying to, to do? What is he doing in our world through all of this? And how am I part of that? How can he use me to be a blessing? How can, my situation, like the Apostle Paul, actually serve to advance the gospel. Remember that God's plans are not restricted by lockdowns and jail or, or death for that matter. But his plans are continually unravelling. So then we come to God's answer in verses 4 to 7, God's answer. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I had been moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So while it 
might have seemed like a good idea at the time, Nathan was going to have to return to the palace, return to King David and admit that he got it wrong. He was going to have to rescind the blessing that he had given. Humble himself and admit that him, the prophet of God, of all people, presumed to speak for God when he shouldn't have. He got it wrong. Mm, David, you know what I said yesterday? Well, change of plans. Um, Yeah, (laughs) we have to scrap that one. And I'm going to tell you what God said. Now, one of the, the hardest things to do is to admit that sometimes we are wrong. Many times, uh, you know, we try and backtrack and, and, and that's not exactly what I meant. So you, you misunderstand. I didn't say, well, you misunderstood. So we try and, and, and cover up our, our mistakes. And that's because of our pride. It keeps us from being humble enough and to admit our mistakes. Now we, we notice a subtle but significant change in these verses. And it was, has to do with the way in which the Lord is, refers to David and he refers to him as my servant. That's in contrast to the first three verses of chapter 7 where he is, David is referred to as the king. But here the Lord did not say, go and tell the king, but said, go and tell my servant David. Now this, I think, recognises the way in which David had, had humbled himself in the previous chapter before the Lord. And by, by God calling him servant, he actually lifts him up to a very, very privileged status indeed. Because ultimately, it's not about his position as a servant, but it's all about the one whom he was serving, God himself. And I think the same is for us. And the Bible reminds us, it is the Lord we are serving. So don't feel bad about whatever the Lord calls us to do. It could be a very lowly job, and maybe people don't recognise it. And that's what Apostle Paul says, remember, it is the Lord that we are serving. Always remember that. Now, while the ark represented the Lord's presence, God cannot be restricted to any physical place or space such as a temple or a tabernacle. And in fact, the, 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 the travelling tabernacle more adequate, adequately portrayed the message that God was with them wherever they went. And through these years, God has rescued, protected and guided Israel without the need for a permanent residency, without needing a house. So why would you consider building one now? It's the message that he's giving to David. Now, um, over the years and over the centuries and even thousands of years, there have been some magnificent Christian churches and cathedrals that have been built. In my travels through Israel, I'm, I'm 
I recall visiting the Church of Bethlehem, which the Church of the Nativity, which was built around about three or four hundred uh, years uh, after the birth of Jesus, which makes it about sixteen hundred years old. Unbelievable. But and, and I suppose many of these places, many of these churches and cathedrals. If you look closely in the front or somewhere near the foundation stone, it, it, it has something like, to the glory of God, that the whole building is to the glory of God. But I, I always ask myself when I read that, is it really? Many times, a lot of these cathedrals and churches are nothing more than empty shells. And as the tourists guides, uh, as, the, as a tourist guide, guides the, the, the bunch of tourists around through the whole place and explains the, the design, the craftsmanship and the artwork and all that thing. It seems to be pointing away from the glory of God and more and more towards the glory of man. The people who have built it with great skill and great sacrifice. But the more you get immersed in some of these magnificent structures, the more you get to applaud man and less and less and you're drawing away the glory from God. We need to recognise that God does not need our projects. Like David, we should contemplate the presence of God among us in the person of Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now that's something to ponder on. Uh, literally, in, in the Gospel of John, literally the word they literally use there is the word tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You need to understand that God is the one who tells us what he requires. He is the one living among us in the presence of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And we need to worship him and thank him for that tremendous privilege that we have of having God in our midst. In verses 8 to 11, David's past and his future. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that you can have a home of their own, so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time of appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Now let me just comment a little bit on the significance of the text before us. It is, it is one of the most important passages in the whole of the Bible. This is because the golden thread that holds the whole of the Bible together, the central message of the Bible is that God has 
promised. For all of the wisdom that the Bible has, for the wealth of information it contains, historical and otherwise, the ultimate worth of Scripture are the promises of God. This is because faith, in the biblical definition, in the biblical sense, is not just believing the information that the the Bible contains as truth and, and we believe it to be truth, but it's actually faith in God's promises. The Bible tells us what God has already done in faithfulness, in fulfilling those promises, in keeping those promises, but then what he will do in the future. I I think many Christians know quite a lot of the contents of the Bible and they accept it and we accept it to be true. But we haven't really understood, we haven't really taken to heart the words of the Apostle Paul when he says that we are called to live by faith. And faith is essential in order to live by God's promises. Faith is essential if we are going to please God. It is impossible to please him without faith. Now to put it in simple terms, the Old Testament provides the links between the promise we read in Genesis and the fulfilment that is there in the New Testament. So, to illustrate it in a way, imagine a very long bridge that goes across a bay and there are three pylons in this bridge. In this sense, David is the central pylon in the middle of the Bible. And he is the crucial link between Abraham and Jesus. This is the importance of David. And so we only understand David in the light of that promise. And it's right here, right here in in 2 Samuel 7, that God reiterates his promise to David and prepares the way for the greatest fulfilment, the destination that crossover into the New Testament, the New Covenant, fulfilled perfectly in Jesus our Lord and Saviour. It was the Lord of hosts who had been at work in David's life, and this is what God reminds him. It had been the Lord of hosts who who was there working in Bethlehem in the humble circumstances as he shepherded the sheep. And he took him from the pastures all the way to the capital, all the way to the top of Jerusalem. And all of his accomplishments and victories were because the Lord was with him. And now as David is sitting in his palace and perhaps drinking a little bit of pina colada in his veranda, watching the sunset, he may have thought that he had reached the top. I have arrived. The goal of life had been attained and God's promises had been fulfilled. But God's promises were still further ahead. He was mistaken. 
And in verse 9, there is a shift uh, from reviewing events of the past to moving what lay ahead in the future. And this is what he promised. Firstly, he said that he will give him a name. And, and, And these words actually point back to the promise that God had made to Abraham back in Genesis, that God had promised Abraham that he will make his name great. Now the Lord intends to fulfill that promise by making David's name great. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but after men and and women for that matter have amassed have amassed their billions, we don't millions is not enough now, now it's billions and we're gonna get close to trillions soon. After they amassed all that wealth and power, what's the most that they want? Well, they want a name. They want a legacy. In Liverpool, one of the, the past uh, millionaires was, uh, were the Inghams, the Ingham family. And how is their name progressed? Well, they set up the Ingham Institute. That is one way to set up their legacy. And, and look, Christians are into this as well. You know, the Spurgeons, Bible College and that type of thing. Because we want to leave a legacy. We want to leave a name. And to some extent, this has already happened. It's already happened to David. And, and he said, well, I've reached the pinnacle. I'm at the top. And that was the title of our message a couple of weeks ago. But, David, you have no idea. You have no idea what God is going to do through you. And and God has to open his eyes to the reality of what is coming ahead. There's a beautiful story uh, in the Gospels where, in in today's language, we would say he was a nobody. He was a blind man, a beggar named Bartimaeus. And this is what Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 48 tells us. Then they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and the disciples together uh, with a large crowd, we're, we're leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging, verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. How many rebuked him and, and told him to be quiet? But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Just just think about that. Why would Bartimaeus say that? Well, it was obviously God that was putting this name into Bartimaeus' head and his heart. And he says, this is the name I want you to declare. This is the name I want you to shout. This is how I want you to get my attention, the attention of my son, who already knew, but I, this is how I want you to get the attention of the crowd. And for 2,000 years we have been reminded that this is the way that Bartimaeus called Jesus the son of David. Isn't that a fulfilment of the promise of God to make David's name great? It's wonderful, isn't it? Secondly, God will give them a place. 
where they will be planted. And, and there is a shift here from David to them, from the individual to the nation, to Israel. And this is the fulfilment of the promised land. And thirdly, God will give them peace and rest. And even though David was making retirement plans, let's remember that it is the Lord who sets the agenda for David and not the other way around. The Lord himself was not ready to rest from his work on behalf of his people. The work of the Lord continues. But there is a promise of peace and rest that he gave to David and there's a promise of peace and rest for you and me. And you need to read the rest of the scriptures what exactly that means. Hebrews is very big on this. Now, lastly, the house the Lord will build in verses 11 to 16. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by man, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Now David, let's remember, already had a very nice house. However, the Lord appears to pay not much interest in David's royal residence. Men might be. Men, it's easy to impress men. But God is not all that impressed by cedar or design or grandeur. And there's a play on words here. I think you can pick it up. While David thinks that he is going to build a house for God, it is the Lord who intends to build a house for David. But it is going to be a different house than the kind that that David imagined. And this is the house that God cared about. This was not going to be a palace. It was going to be a dynasty. To borrow an expression from Crocodile Dundee, that's not a house, this is a house. And isn't this so much like God, right? We want to do something for God and we should all strive to do that. But God wants to do so much more for us. And yes, there will be a physical house There will be a temple that is built, a glorious temple that will be built, but David's not the one who's going to build it. And and this is, I suppose, a confirmation to David that his, his intentions, the intentions of his heart, were in the right place. They were not wrong in and of themselves. But the timing was wrong, and the person who was going to build it was wrong. 
Eventually, as we know, the house will be built by his son, Solomon. And we might ask, well, how can the promises of God of an eternal kingdom be true when David's kingdom was was shattered, was destroyed? Yes, we, we know that after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided into the north and the south, two kingdoms. Each in turn was devastated at different times by the by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Romans, etc. But God continually sent prophets to remind Israel that the promise of 2 Samuel 7 still stood, still applied. And it would be wonderfully, wonderfully fulfilled in Jesus. And this is what we read in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. Sometimes, we, you know, we, we look around the landscape, the landscape of our land, and it looks pretty parched and, and deserted, particularly during a drought. It's not much out there. And perhaps all that we can see is a lonely stump in the middle of a paddock. And despite our sinfulness and rebellion, God is putting together a far better proposal than we could ever imagine. It can be, it is unfolding, even through our ordinary circumstances. To us it might not appear that we are winning because of the constant opposition, frustration, suffering and disappointment that we encounter. And you know what the message of the prophet is? To us a child is born and a son is given. In the background, you see, God's sovereign plans continue to unfold. We can't control it. What we should do is dare to welcome it. Join in, not resist it. And just remember, there is a larger building project going on right there. And it is God's building project. And let me leave you with words of the Apostle Paul. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. An eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And amen to that, right? Amen to that. May God bless you as you ponder on these words of the Lord. Amen.